Animal Built podcast. Um, my name is Chloe and I'm one of the student fellows working with Built this year. Uh, in today's episode, I'm going to be chatting to my amazing colleague and friend, student fellow Johnny Barnes, and tester researcher extraordinaire Dr. Hopwood <laughs> about the work they've recently done on the importance of peer relationships in online learning. Uh, and something that I think is probably one of the most talked about aspects uh, of blended learning and online learning, which is, of course, breakout rooms. Um, so hello, Johnny and Isabel. Hello. <laughs> uh, can you firstly fill our listeners in on what this uh, project is, what it involves for you guys, and also why you feel it is important? Um, so why is this work important, I think, is... Um, the question I'm going to start off with. So one of Bill's themes for this year, very um, very relevant theme for this year, is building inclusive online communities. Um, and what this theme is trying to do is make sure that we still feel like we are a community, although we might be distant across the globe in some situations. Um, making sure that we still feel like we're a cohort and that we are community and that we can discuss um, relevant issues to us. Um, so, and what we aim to do is that we've noticed, um, Isabel will talk about the pulse data um, later on, uh, that, we ana that she analysed as part of this, um, that some students particularly felt that breakout rooms could be better structured um, to make this discussion that they so desperately want um, more, more better facilitated. Um, so yeah, uh, so that's what we did. And Isabel, do you have anything to add? I think, yes, I'd, I'd say that um, the, the main way that Johnny and I've worked together recently was in putting together a presentation for um, an online conference that was actually being, um, it was coordinated by um, Professor Robin Shields from the School of Education um, and involved quite a lot of researchers based in Iraq. Um, so interestingly, we had the Ministry for Education um, watching our presentation. <laughs> um, I didn't, oh my goodness. <laughs> They were very polite about it. They, they, they were very lo they were lovely. They actually translated the um, presentation at the end and then took questions. Um, so, yes, it was it was really good, really interesting experience for us both. Um, but the reason that we kind of wanted to collaborate on that was because I was, as Johnny's always uh, already mentioned, I was looking at um, some data from the latest Pulse survey um, that was done for University of Bristol students. And I was particularly interested in a subset, 496 students, who had all um, given a reason for why they weren't, or they were avoiding um, synchronous online learning activities as part of their blended learning. Um, and I sort of thought that this kind of, this kind of part of the data was really important. First of all, because it comprised one fifth of our respondents. So that means that one in five of University of Bristol students who did the survey were admitting to actually avoiding or, you know, um, minimizing their kind of interaction and participation in synchronous online learning. Um, and that's a pretty, that's a pretty hefty fraction we've got there, you know, one in five. And also obviously because there was so much in the responses that they gave, they were able to kind of give a free text answer, explain why if they chose to. 
And so it was incredibly rich data with all this stuff sort of coming out about why um, students were uncomfortable with synchronous online or what it was specifically about it um, that, you know, that they wanted to keep away from. And so I was talking, I was discussing that um, with another research colleague and she happened to mention that uh, Johnny had been looking into what was going on in breakout rooms and how students felt about um, using breakout rooms. And perhaps unsurprisingly to anyone who sat through a breakout room where maybe there's 20 of you and no one touches on the camera and no one wants to say anything, <laughs> um, breakout rooms were coming out loud and clear in my data as well as being particularly problematic. So to me, it seemed like a really interesting idea for me to kind of, you know, be sort of collaborating with Johnny and slotting his findings and his thoughts into the presentation that I was putting together because um, he, if you like, had kind of, what we'd call, I don't know, insights from the field uh, about what was going on with breakout rooms and some recommendations based on that. So it seemed to be a really nice kind of partnership, really, I suppose, in, in um, both the two things that we were uh, looking into. Mm. I suppose, um, what do you think it is about breakout rooms that really put students off? <laughs> this is a question for both of you. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll answer that question from the perspective of the, um, the study that I've been working on. Um, I actually went to Tansy Jessup and I spoke to her about the data because I needed to get permission to kind of, you know, really dig into it. And obviously it's quite sensitive data in some ways because it's students, you know, saying why they kind of dislike, you know, their learning so intensely. Um, and one suggestion she made, which was really helpful, was to think about it from a relationships perspective, because learning you know learning is socially constructed that's my belief um and socially constructed learning is dependent on relationships so we can say it's also relational so the quality of the learning and the extent of the learning that takes place depends on the perception if you like of the learners relationships with those different people around them in their environment so perhaps not so much um a social constructivist perspective but a socio-cultural perspective on learning and how it happens and what what shapes learning um, and she was talking about a paper by someone called Kathleen Quinlan, who identified four key relationships that she believed higher education students needed to develop as they progressed through their um, undergraduate or even postgraduate degrees. And thinking about those, so in terms of relationships to peers, relationships to teachers, relationships to the subject and relationships to the self in terms of your kind of internal development. Um, and something that really chimed with what I was telling her about the stuff that was coming out about breakout groups and something that Johnny was looking at as well, you know, and then kind of, if you like, overlaying Kathleen Quinlan's idea about key relationships, it seemed that the opportunity for students to develop relationships with their peers was really inhibited in some of their experiences of online learning. By all means, not all of them. Some people had very effective and satisfying online learning experiences, but some people felt isolated. They felt as though every time they went into a breakup room, it was a totally different bunch of people. They felt they didn't know the people they were with. They, they felt inhibited, socially inhibited and awkward about saying hi, about the small talk. There was no opportunity for the small talk. And so it just felt very high stakes, very stressful um, and intimidating to be kind of pushed into a room with these people and then have to sit there and share their thoughts. And bear in mind as well, these are students who perhaps haven't got a particularly strongly developed relationship to subject yet. So they're not necessarily 
confident enough to think, actually, this is my opinion. I'm entitled to it. I'm okay about sharing this and, you know, and bouncing it off, you know, bouncing it off a few other people's opinions. There was a very strong feeling that came through in the data as well of, oh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified to speak about this yet. I don't think I know enough about this yet. You know, and so I think that was playing into it as well. But yeah, so I'll hand over to Johnny in a second. But for me, um, what came out, the, if you like, the issue, you know, that, that came out for the breakout rooms was students, the students sense that they did not know their peers. They didn't know these other people. So it was, it didn't feel safe, you know, kind of sharing, sharing their ideas and their thoughts. Yeah, so I took um, the same point as Isabel, that students just felt awkward in breakout rooms, um, but from a diff slightly different perspective. Um, so on my personal Twitter and TikTok feeds, I used to get a lot of people um, just sort of memeing about how awkward breakout rooms were. So it would be um, like this break breakout rooms and leave meetings sound the same to me um, because students were just so felt so awkward in breakout rooms that it was easier just to leave the meeting and come back 10 20 minutes later Johnny um, I have to say my favorite was breakout rooms activates my fight or flight <laughs> <laughs> they were absolutely excellent um, some yeah. of the student contributions um, and I I just felt that in this year where we are online learning that breakout rooms because they are in a normal classroom environment having a discussion with the people around you is really common practice and nobody hates it that much before covid i didn't look on my twitter feed and see loads of people going oh i hate groups i just hide under the table when we're put into table groups so <laughs> which is essentially the equivalent thing when you mm -hmm. think about it. yeah um, so Given that we don't have much time to address these things that might be able to have a really good impact, a really positive impact, um, I felt that breakout rooms were something that if we could make a few quick fixes, then we'd have a really positive impact for the students, um, both socially and academically, because if they're feeling comfortable socially, and they can, as Isabel mentioned, discuss these ideas that they feel that they are entitled to. Um, and get more out of the group session in general. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, and just coming away from that conversation about uh, breakout rooms, Johnny, um, I know that you found that students who were new to the university had different perspective on what improvement to breakout rooms would mean. Um, so could you discuss your findings on that a little bit? Yeah, so as part of the ways that we can fix it, um, we came up with some of the, well, we built on ideas that um, maybe students could be in longer term groups. So at the beginning of a the semester, they would be put into a group of say between three to five students and be in that group, that same group of students for a number of weeks to give them some solidarity that they can get to know those, the people in that group and almost get to the stage where they can have some banter and they feel comfortable around those students. Um, however, um, when I spoke to second, third, third and fourth year continuing students uh, at the University of Bristol, they didn't feel as comfortable with that. They felt that they would much rather have random groups than potentially be subjected to a group where 
nobody will, where people didn't pull their weight as much, for instance. Um, so second, continuing students definitely felt that it was an unnecessary step. They'd rather just have the random groups. But first year students and new master's students who had joined the university um, and didn't know anyone, essentially is the, the key part of this. If you don't know anyone, having those continued relationships where you actually get a chance to build a relationship with a peer, um, as opposed to the random groups where you might see another student for 20 minutes over the six weeks that you're in a module. Um, if you already had those relationships, you didn't need to rebuild them. Whereas first years and new master students did need to build those relationships. Mm. So having read um, both of your uh, blog posts and um, the presentation that you did, I'm wondering um, if you feel that the experiences, both positive and negative, that students are having with online learning environments may partly have something to do with the existing relationship between students and academic staff, do you feel? I think that I think that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that came out again in the Pulse data that I found was, first of all, I was looking at it and thinking, this is really interesting. It looks to me as though that peer relationship, that discomfort around you know feeling comfortable with your peers when your peers still feel unfamiliar to you and like strangers that seems to mediate the development of the other relationships and in particular the teacher relationship because somebody who doesn't want to be judged harshly by their peers oh look at that know-it-all or whatever or there they go again answering all the questions you know that that sort of social horror of being judged really harshly by these peers that they still felt they didn't know was um was preventing quite a few students from interacting. And even students who identified themselves in their comments in the past data that as, as being extroverted and would say, you know, normally I'd be the first in, first in there with a question or always asking the teaching assistant something, but even I'm teaching assistant something, but even I can't speak because I feel so nervous about what other people are going to think about me. So there was, and then that obviously there's a relationship there that then isn't being developed with the teacher or the teaching staff because if that's you know if students aren't putting up their hands and querying what they've just said or asking for further explanation or even just you know offering their own thoughts on it that kind of back and forth that kind of dialogue which you would hope would become something of a dialogic relationship with the teacher is not developing and the teachers equally aren't getting a better feel for like you know what people know and what they don't know what they understand and what needs more elaboration um, as they're doing the teaching itself. So in summary, uh, what we can see there is that, um, if you like, there, there maybe there's a bit of a brittle quality to the development of that student-teacher relationship online if that student is already struggling with this kind of peer unfamiliarity, if you like. Mm. And something else, kind of peer unfamiliarity, if you like. Mm. And something else that came up when I kind of started really rummaging around um, and looking at the literature on emotions in teaching and learning for higher education students um, was the ways in which students can have a very strong emotional response, positive or negative, to how they feel, they're, how they perceive they're being communicated with by the teacher. Um, and as you might expect, you know, there, there's an upside and downside to this. So the paper, uh, there's a paper by Titsworth et al, and it's from 2010, I think, where they're noticing that when when higher education students feel as though the teacher is very responsive, um, if you like, perceptive is 
is using lots of what they call, if you like, um, nonverbal cues. They refer to it as nonverbal immediacy. So things like um, facial expression, tone of voice, a tilt of the head, you know, offline, it would be, you know, turning around or walking towards the student as they talk, you know, using gestures, things like that as well. You know, the student is being responded to, that the teacher is responsive, if you like, um, to, to the interaction. And when students perceive a high level of nonverbal immediacy, um, they report, you know, uh, emotions such as motivation, happiness, um, confidence and so on. And the flip side of that is like when they perceive um, low levels of nonverbal immediacy. So perhaps, they, you know, lack of eye contact, um, monotone, tone of voice. Um, no real clear indication of whether the teacher is actually listening to what they're saying. So they kind of start to feel kind of uncomfortable inside, you know, that, so that sort of feeling that you get. Then the um, emotional response in the student is very profound. It's anxiety, it's boredom, it's helplessness, it's shame, it's anger. Um, and that's, that comes from a paper by Mazer et al. So he was one of the original researchers on the previous one that I cited. And that's published in tw uh, 2014. And so if this was already going on, you know, ooh, seven years before we had a pandemic, cycling some of these problems online. Um, and somebody who's already experiencing, if you like, a brittle relationship with their teachers and somebody perhaps who has the misfortune or the bad luck, you know, to have teachers who perhaps are not such competent um, communicators online. So perhaps, you know, they're not with the, the issues around eye contact, around gesture, about, you know, gesticulation, tone of voice. Perhaps the teachers aren't particularly demonstrative or communicative like that in the first place. Perhaps they've chosen to keep their camera switched off as well because they don't want everyone to see the, you know, the dirty laundry hanging, you know, quite literally behind them in the kitchen. Um, and then you've got a student sitting there who's feeling, who's perceiving really low levels of nonverbal immediacy, who is feeling really unlistened to, really unheard um, and ignored perhaps or dismissed. And then, of course, there's another issue around here as well in terms of the use of the chat. Um, this is something that pops up every now and then is chat etiquette. Um, this is something that pops up every now and then is chat etiquette. If you're, if students are posting questions in the chat, when do you pause in your teaching, review the questions and reply to them? Or do you just steam on through because you're stressed out and you've got so much content to do and you can't understand why they keep chucking things in the chat and would they just stop it? It's really distracting, you know, or maybe you just disable the chat altogether and you think, I'll just deal with questions at the end. But the student doesn't know that that's what you're doing and they don't understand that's your rationale for doing it. So there's other things like that that can be picked up by the students as being um, particularly cold or unhelpful as well. So there's those things, I think those, those dimensions of online learning can be quite, maybe damaging is too strong a word, um, but detrimental to the development of, of that relationship between students and teachers. Thank you, Isabel. Um, and for our listeners, um, I'm wondering what key points you would both like them to know about using... I guess I collated um, some tips on this in my blog. Um, so to summarise them really quickly for our listeners, I group size played a, quite a key role in this, um, mainly because some students, as Isabel found out, were in quite large breakout rooms, say 20 students, I think was the maximum. Um, which is really quite quite large. You wouldn't have a 20-person conversation in a normal classroom, re really. Um, so I guess group size is important, and I would recommend between three to five students, and I think that's quite key. Another point would be 
So to give students a really clear task on what to do um, and a way to get an output from that. So for instance, I would like you to just get an output from that. So for instance, I would like you to just be a Padlet. So it's really clear um, what the students have to do and what the output is. And then because this is on a Padlet in my example, you can then discuss that output as a class once you put them back into the breakout room. Um, and another thing to be um, considerate of is students who are watching this back asynchronously. So if they can't benefit from the discussion in person, um, to give them something to do um, during that time. So it's not wasted and they can still contribute. Well, they can still, what's the word, um, study independently. I think, I think I'd add another um, point to that, which actually, and I can't take credit for this, this comes from Michelle, another of the student fellows. <laughs> she, she was... Um, she said something the other day that was very interesting to me because we were actually doing, um, she commented and she was observing and she commented that it's really useful to have somebody who knows that they've got to lead the activity out. And that was a really interesting point because I've done a lot of kind of, you know, breakout rooms, chat wrangling and everything else in these online meetings in the last year. And it's always been for other members of staff. And so the idea that, you know, you could kind of, if you like, throw five lecturers into a breakout room and have none of them, uh, well, have all of them hesitant and unable to think of how to start the discussion so it seems absurd. So you don't have to worry about that problem. Um, but it was, it was very thought-provoking for me. And I actually did, um, I did actually talk to a student about it at another um, workshop I did, and she was saying, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes you just go in and because no one wants to start it, no one says anything because everyone just sits there feeling tongue-tied. And so it's say, like, ah, oh, okay, so you've got a couple of options here, haven't you? You either try and drop in or knock in on all of your breakout rooms and do the jazz hands at, you know, at your students and get make sure that they've kind of got going, or you actually say, right, one of you is going to need to um, start this activity. And it's interesting because that to me seems like a really good idea, but then I would absolutely hate, as a teacher, I would hate to make a particular student feel very put upon and exposed by saying, and it has to be you, Johnny, you know, you have to kind of be the guy in charge today or something like that, you know, because it, we've all been there when there's, you know, when we've kind of felt that, ah, oh, whenever I'm in a group, everyone always expects me to make notes or whenever I'm in a group, everyone always waits for me to feed back to the teacher because they don't want to say anything. So we need to make sure we avoid a situation where it's the same old people again and again who begin to feel quite resentful and unhappy, you know, because they they just want to participate sometimes. They don't always want to be the, the mouthpiece for the group. Um, but yes, it's, I think maybe, and I don't know what you, you know, what you are all helpful to um, suggest the groups, you know, that as they go into the breakout room, somebody's going to need to start the activity. It was something when I was researching this that did come up in a couple of articles aimed at um, secondary school pupils, older secondary school pupils, to give each group member a task so you might have a lead ah, yeah, yeah. A time mm. um, and it was interesting to me at the time because I was like I can see that as you brought up Michelle's example I can see that working to some extent but mm. at the same time at a university and I don't think we necessarily need a note keeper and a time keeper 
and all of the other roles that you might potentially fulfill, giving mm. them useless tasks that nobody's going to benefit from. Um, so I didn't, it's something that I wanted to look more into because it, maybe we can develop more, we can develop more group roles to suit your own seminar, the purpose in your own seminar. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Um, just to finish up, um, I'm wondering what has been the overall takeaway points from this project for both of you? What do you think is kind of most important for seminar leaders to begin considering in order to better students' experiences of online learning? For me, there's two. The first one is that giving students, especially first years, um, you know, who are fresh to uni and have not already built up a kind of, you know, a friendship base, if you like, is, is, is giving students the opportunity to develop their peer relationships um, as part of their online learning experience is absolutely critical because if they don't feel as, you know, detrimental and have a bit of a giggle before they go in, the opportunities they have to kind of give each other a kind of what on earth is he on about look, you know, while they're kind of trying to figure out what the assignment is or, you know, have a chat afterwards and go for a coffee. None of that was possible. And so we had many students who were really struggling with that sort of sense of, I'm not sure if I can work with these people. I don't know if I know these people. It's really critical that our students feel comfortable enough, familiar enough around each other to be able to take the risks we want them to take and to be, to be able to learn you know, to kind of share their ideas, even if they are half-formed, um, to put an argument for and against something, even knowing that, you know, somebody else is starting to criticise aspects of it, you know, that's really, really important. And I think the second thing, so we need to make sure there's opportunities for peer relationships to be developed, you know, the teaching opportunities that we do create for online. And the second thing is that as teachers, we need to remember that that non non-verbal immediacy that, comes very naturally and is very easily picked up when we're offline really doesn't translate very well online and so I think this is where we have to be a lot more verbally explicit in terms of how we communicate with students we need to remember it's almost like the pleases and thank yous you know we need to greet people as they come in we need to use their names um, we need to explain why we're doing something what we're doing like Johnny was saying be really clear about the purpose of the task you know what's what the outcome is going to be how we're going to share it we need to thank students when they make contributions because it's hard for them. It's nerve wracking. You know, they're in this weird position. Um, and, you know, we need to hang back at the end if we can um, so that students can have a chat and come up to us with a question towards the end when some people have, you know, left the call. And then there's just a few of them left. And maybe it feels a bit safer and less intimidating to come up and ask, you know, to ask a question about something that um, you mentioned earlier. I think we need to be aware of that as well. Yeah, I just wanted to add on to all of the excellent points that is points that Isabel has made um, in regards to something, I guess, more logistical um, in that for breakout rooms to have them, I guess, little and often. So to have sort of 10 mm. or 15 minute long sessions. So if it isn't going well, then it's not too long to wait through before you get back to sort of productive. Um, but little and often in the sense that having one 15-minute breakout room is quite manageable for most students. Um, if it's within a group of three to five students, they can turn their camera on, they can turn their microphone on, be quite comfortable within that. 
Um, whereas having more of them within the same session is quite draining. Because being on camera, I'm sure we've all felt Zoom fatigue over the past year. Um, being on Zoom meetings for hours on end, even with your camera off, can sometimes be quite draining. Um, so having one opportunity, um, so having one opportunity within a lecture to do that and to have them relatively short but with a very clear outcome. So um, not that there wouldn't be time to exchange pleasantries because I think that's a really key part as well. So make sure that you've got time in there so that people can ask how their weekends are and just general small talk that we would do because we're in teaching block two now. So hopefully on the same course, you would start have started to see some familiar faces um, and start to build some relationships with students. Um, so I guess little and often would be my, my mm. takeaway. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, both Johnny and Isabel, for such an interesting discussion. Um, if you'd like to read the blog posts that both Johnny and Isabel have written on this topic, then you can find them on our blog. Um, and also just to say that at Built, we're always conversation, then do feel free to get in touch with the team.